0: Jump into the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and we're going to do the last four verses. But if you guys have ever dug into this topic before, this can be contentious in some way. So we're going to cover, we're going to read the whole thing, but then we're going to back up and we're only going to cover four verses out of it because this is one of those studies that um, there are some, some debates over how this works and that's okay. We're going to get into some of those things, but we're going to, like I said, read the whole thing, then back off and shrink it up, and we'll do kind of the easy part first, and then when we come back for the next study, we'll do the harder part. So this is really about the coming of the Lord. So if you're a believer and you believe that you're going to go to heaven someday, there's this belief that God's going to come back and get us, Jesus is going to come back and get us. But first, we're going to recap what we studied last week, and we went over brotherly love last week, right, and we dug into what it looks like to love people as a church we dug into what it looks like for people in the church to love one another, brothers and sisters in the church, and how the example of the Thessalonians and how they loved each other, Paul was exhorting. He was saying, you guys are doing a good job. You guys are doing really well, but I want you to do it more and more. And we talked about how their love was so good for each other that it reached outside the walls of the city into all of Macedonia. And we talked about like what, where Macedonia was, right? It's right above where Athens, Greece is. And it's also where the city of Berea is and the city of Philippi. So it's a big region, you know, a Roman province. And so they're doing so well, loving one another. People are looking at it and going, wow, those people are doing a good job. Paul's like, you can do it better. So we discussed living quietly. We discussed minding our own affairs, working, how we walk properly before God. And we really drilled down on this idea of great love. Okay. And how do we do it more and more? It begs the question, how do you love people in the church more and more? How do we get this done and there's a giant list of ways and we went over a few of them how we show love for each other how brothers and sisters in the church can show love for one another and especially right here in the body of christ and we went over just a few examples that are practical and useful and these are some of the ones that we went over just as a reminder i would write this in your heart think about it today dwell on it throughout the week when you encounter people in the faith these are things you should do We lift each other up when we're down, right? So if somebody's having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, somebody's life isn't going well, it is our responsibility to step in and say, what do you need from me? What can I do for you? How can I be useful? What is wrong? Even if they don't want to share it, you're available for them. So lifting each other up, being generous, we are supposed to be generous. And yes, that means your money, but it also means your greatest asset, which is, we talked about it, anybody remember? Your time. It's your time. Everybody knows this. Like, your time is your greatest asset because it's limited and it's usually the hardest thing to break into. Sometimes it's, although people are tight with their money, it's easier to get the money than it is to be like, I will spend time with you. So, time is one of our greatest assets patience, forgiveness, honesty, confessing our sins to one another. And then the greatest one, which Paul talks about over and over and over, that he never ceases. Doing what? What does Paul never cease doing? Praying. Paul's always praying. He never ceases praying, right? So all these things we can actively participate in. As a body of Christ, we can actively participate in these things. And they're also just attributes of the Christian walk, right? They're all things we can learn to do better. They're things that we do that glorify God. Because when we are living and acting and loving like a church, that glorifies God. That is our goal. And they're all things that make the church better. It makes us better when we love each other and serve one another and care for one another and know what each other's problems are and know that somebody has a problem, we're going to be there for them. It makes us stronger. If you remember the last verse we went over last week was from Romans 12, verse 10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another with showing honor. So brotherly love, sisterly love. We can all do these things more and more. Imagine trying to outdo everybody with how much you love them. You know, that's, it's quite a thing, you know. I mean, you guys brought great donuts this morning. Next week, I'm going to bring better I don't know if you can bring better donuts. You pretty much hit the You got granny, so. But the idea is we outdo each other with honor, right? You guys win this week. So. But um, we can all do this thing called love better, right? So today, we're going to read the first six verses of this idea of the Lord coming, the coming of the Lord. And we're going to back up, like I said, and cover the first four verses. And we're going to break it up into two sections. There's a ton to cover here. This study falls under the theological title of something called eschatology, eschatology, which basically just, it's, it's a big fancy word that basically means the study of last things. Um, and the first part we're going to cover is about the dead in Christ, or those who are asleep in Christ, or people who are believers who have, died already people who have died so if you would grab your bible go to 1 Thessalonians 4 go all the way to the end of that chapter i are going to start in verse 13 and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter but we're not going to cover it because you kind of need to hear it all because the first verses we'll cover are, are intrinsically tied to the end so you'll have it kind of floating in your head as we study the first part so 1 Thessalonians 4 We're starting in verse 13, and Paul wrote this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's kind of a lot going on there, but you get the picture because he's talking about being called up to the Lord in the clouds. Or that big fancy word that we get from Latin, the rapture, right? You've probably heard that before. So the rapture, and we're gonna talk about that. There's probably people in this room who will disagree about when it happens and how it happens. And it's, that's Okay. It's, it really is okay. I've got my own thoughts on it, and you might disagree with me. And I have like drilled down on this so hard at some points in my life that there are things that I still can't quite work out in my head, right? Not because the Bible's confusing, and I am absolutely sure of this. God does not want us absolutely sure about the end. He wants us to prepare ourselves as individuals as husbands and wives, and as a church, to be ready for him to come back. And how do we do that? By loving each other more and more. It's really that simple. We are ready for him to come back when we are glorifying him through our walk. Not because we're focusing on the end. Oh, I know. I I figured it out. I did all the math in the Bible. I know when he's coming. Okay, well, you spent all that time figuring out when he's coming back, but you forgot about your wife and kids. Focus on the, keep the main thing the main thing, right? All right, so let's dig in here. So you're going to see that this part of the letter seems to be in response to a question. And that's how he starts this out. It seems to be in response to something that they're questioning. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a real issue. So a question about what will happen to those people who are believers who have died. And as we're looking forward to the coming of the Lord, what's going to happen? So they're like, what about all these people? You know, my my grandma believed in Jesus, but she's dead. I thought she was going to get resurrected and go to heaven. She's dead. What happens to her? So this is kind of the answer to that question. It might be hidden rhetorical. So, or it got delivered uh, to him possibly by Timothy. Because remember, Timothy is reporting to Paul what has happened there because Timothy was sent. So just keep that in mind. So he starts out by saying that he does not want them to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. So I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. There's four times where Paul says in his letters that he doesn't want us to be ignorant about things. So and I think if we look at those four things, those are things that in our studies we can go, these are things we should have some sort of view on. It may not be completely worked out, but we have a good idea, right? And those four things are Israel's salvation or the salvation even of the church. So Romans eleven twenty five, the spiritual gifts. In one Corinthians eleven twenty-five, we haven't got to Corinthians yet. That's a whole other can of worms. We'll talk about spiritual gifts. I know we're in North Carolina, the Bible of the buck, the buckle of the Bible belt, and we'll talk about those when we get there. It's a lot of crazy stuff. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about suffering and trials in Christian life. Two Corinthians one eight, but we know suffering and trials are things we're going to deal with in life. And then the second coming, which he's talking about here, of Jesus. And I think some people make the minor things the major thing. And I think the major thing we need to remember, and we'll see that is Christ is coming back to get us. And that's it. He doesn't want us to try to drill down on all the math and make it crazy because people look at the math in different ways and it can make us very contentious. So we need to be careful that we're focusing on this is about Christ coming back to get us. So the first part of the second coming is the resurrection of the dead. So let's drill drill down on that a little bit, okay? or as Paul describes them here as those who've fallen asleep. So he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And he makes it clear that people who do not have hope in Jesus grieve in ways they don't need to, right? So they, when and you've been around this, people who die, they just like, just can't go on. So their mom or dad has died, or their spouse has died, or a child has died, and it just ruins everything. They have absolutely no hope because they can't get it through their head that that person has moved to the next. Or because they're non-believers, they have no idea what's happened to their loved one. I mean, it's really sad if you think about it. You've spent your life with this person, loving this person, being around this person, developing a relationship with them. And because you are hopeless in life, you are hopeless in death. Right? So we know what happens to believers. They do not go to dwell with the Father. And I don't think that's just hopeless, I think that's tragic. That moves to whoever that person may be is not with the Father and not living in paradise, and that is absolutely tragic. So he makes it clear that people don't have hope in Jesus, grieve in ways that we don't need to. So what did the contemporaries of Paul think about the afterlife? And that's kinda the important thing. If he's saying to you, you have hope in Christ, but I don't want you to grieve like everybody else, Well, it's important to think, well, what did everybody else think? And I think you'll find it's not a lot different than what people do today. They just kind of make up things to fill in the gaps. And you guys have heard them all. I've heard them all. It drives me nuts to hear my family members say this when I you know, somebody has passed and they're like, Oh, they're just they got their wings. It's not a thing. People do not get wings when they die. They are not birds. They are not angels. They do not get their wings. Or they say, now they're my angel. They're not angels, that's not a thing. Angels are angels, people are people. Look, he came to save the people. He didn't go to save the angels. We're way more important. Even though we're below them in the heavenlies, he came for us, we are not angels. Or how about this one? Well, they're looking down on you now. No, not a thing, they're not looking down on you. If they're believers and they're with the Father, and there's no more grief and no more pain, they don't need to worry about you anymore they get to look to the father. They are in the ultimate glorified position. It is amazing for them. They don't need to know what's going on in your horrible life. They got great things going on with them with the father. We when we're hopeful want for the people in our lives who are believers to be able to enjoy the father. Why would I want my gr- dead grandma who was just like loved Jesus to like just spent her life in prayer for her family and her friends to worry about this guy. I got so much junk going on in my. Life. I am so overwhelmed with the stupid stuff I've got going on. I want her to enjoy her time with the Father. She's in paradise. You know I don't need her to look down on me. Right, Grandma, I got this. You're with Jesus. That's good. And that's what I want for my friends and my family is that, that's the hope. So we've seen this in our contemporaries. What's it look like? So Paul's contemporaries were Romans and Greeks and Jews, right? So the Romans, they had all kinds of superstitious beliefs. It, to include one is demonis, or it's a concept of the afterlife. So this concept of the afterlife, uh, many believe there's like an underworld where regular people went um, and uh, emperors could be lifted up to a godly state of course so like what happens in the temporal also happens in the afterlife like the emperors are godlike so they go become gods and the regular people are just regular people so they go to the underworld that was kind of the roman thoughts on a lot of that um they would build these statues and make masks that could be worn to keep spirits in, alive in the present right so like if i you know if my dad dies and i love him a lot i'd have a stone mask made and i'd wear it and it would somehow keep his spirit alive and as you know Roman architecture is one of the biggest progenies of large art stonework in the history of the world. I mean, there's still Roman statues and everything around. They were to build these amazing statues of people, especially emperors, and most of that was done not just to remember someone, it was done because it was tied to their thought of the afterlife. If I build a statue of the Roman emperor, then somehow the spirit of him exists with us, gives us power, right? So think about that. And we have kind of carried a lot of that forward. Anybody ever been to DC and rode around and looked at what the buildings are all shaped like? Big Roman buildings with like pictures of faces and statues everywhere, right? So we're still kind of doing it today. And then the Greek mythology, you guys have probably seen this. We still make movies about Greek mythology today. It's fun to look into. It makes for great movies and great stories. It's like some of the most action-packed stuff out there. But they believed in an underworld called Hades right you probably heard this before the afterlife changed uh, from the times of homer if everybody's ever heard of homer famous writer he wrote somewhere in the 8th century bc but the afterlife changed because in homer's time the afterlife was really grim it was really bad it was horrible place to go to it was a dreary existence and then by the time plato starts writing about the afterlife in like the fourth century a.d we see it go into a little different concepts people like the poet horace describes this idea of like carpe diem right seize the day so this we don't want to look towards the afterlife as this horrible thing we're going to look at tomorrow as seize the day we're going to do our best tomorrow we're going to make have your best life now you know those those books is that one of the smile and joel theme things your best life now like pretty bad concept for a christian i'm hoping my best life's in the after. because if my best life is now that's Pretty miserable, so that's a whole other topic. Jews had a very ambiguous view of the afterlife. If you uh, look at Jewish culture, even though it's spelled out well, when you look at the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, you can see heaven in it. The problem with the Jews is they just didn't have that lens, so it was very difficult for them. They were very focused on today, they were very focused on the Messiah coming as a State leader and caring for them as a state leader so that he was going to be in charge of all of Israel and Israel would thrive here. They had a hard time seeing beyond here. I mean, he's God, the master of the universe. And they were thinking here instead of bigger. The Old Testament does point to a resurrection, does point to an afterlife, places like Daniel 12, if you're interested in reading into old prophecy. Um, But the concept was not developed really well for them. And there are concepts of heaven and hell, um, or this idea of Gan and gehenom, Um, And they were known places, things like Sheol, where the dead would go and dwell. There's a lot of conjecture about how that works out. Does everybody go to Sheol? Is it just a holding place for the dead until Christ or the Messiah comes? Or is Sheol hell? I mean, there's a lot of conjecture. We're not going to get into that today. But all of these really are kind of hopeless if you think about it, because people don't know where they're gonna go. Where, if I lose my child, where does my child go? And I don't know about you guys, but I am a worrier. I stress about stuff all the time. Like I am always in the red, stressed out. And I try very hard not to be, but I worry about things like I love my wife and my kids. And if something bad happens to them, what, what have I done to make sure that they have hope in what is next? I remember years ago, I sat on a plane and I was reading a Skip Heitzig book. Skip Heitzig's a pastor of uh, a Calvary church in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, great expositor of the word of God. I sat on a plane, I uh, you know, paid the upcharge to sit in business class. And uh, it's just you know a little more leg room for those of you, or a little more shoulder room for those of you who are not scrawny. And I'm sitting next to this guy and uh, I'm reading and he's looking at a newspaper and he kicks off the small talk. And he says, what are you reading? So I, the book, and it had the word Jesus in it, but I don't remember what it was. And he was like, oh, are you a Christian? <laughs> like, just like the most condescending tone ever. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, as I am. And he was like, hmm, cool. And this like went right back to his paper. And I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is great. But, you know, I didn't have to kick that door down. That dude just, oh, he just, just opened it right up for me. So I'm going in. So I was like, "And you are not a Christian?" And he said, "No, actually, I am a PhD microbiologist, and he worked at a university." He was like, "Science proves that that just does not work out." And I was like, "Well, I I would tend to disagree with you, and I've read a bunch from some of your, um, you know, colleagues who may not work with you, but there's a lot of people in science who would, you know." vehemently disagree with your stance that God doesn't exist because you went to college and learned a little bit about biology but we can get into that if you'd like and he was like no I'm I'm pretty settled on it and I said cool I said uh, you got a family he said yeah I do you're married you have kids he said yeah I said, how old are your kids and they were little at the time I said that's cool so so you don't believe in God at all you know? I said so you don't care what happens to your kids when they die? He said, well, that's, I mean, I, I just don't believe in this whole God and heaven and hell thing. And I was like, so you don't love your kids? I mean, you brought kids in this world. Wouldn't you want better for them than just this miserable existence? He said, well, I think we got a pretty good existence. we do well and we treat them well and they love well. I just don't think they'll go to a heaven or to a hell. And I said, but what if they, what if they do? I mean, this is kind of a, a horrible argument, right? This uh, argument like, to believe in God because there might be a heaven and hell, but he's hopeless. He's absolutely hopeless. I'll spare you the rest of the story. It was probably two hours of me bending this guy's ear, but I just can't help thinking you've brought life into this world and you are at a point in your life where you just don't care what happens to your kids or your wife. What an awful place to be. How hopeless to think that the love of my life would pass tomorrow and then that's it. I want better for her. I want more than I could give her. I want her to be with the Father. And I just think it's awful. It's hopeless, right? So, um, of course, we know this. The rest of the world has a multitude of myths and things that'll happen as the world does today. Stories of what's to come, but they're hopeless. So we have no reason to grieve. We have no reason to grieve over our daughter dying. My kids are going to heaven and I know that. Oh, they still worry about it because I want them to be fully, you know, I still worry about it, but I know they're going to it Right, so let's look at verse 14. So as we look at verse 14, it says this. It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Boom. So really uh, simple here. This covers the central tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ conquered sin. He conquered death. He was resurrected from the grave. And why do we believe this? Because we have eyewitness testimonies after Jesus that he was resurrected. Okay. Like, here it is. Can of worms. Your average non-believer would be like, you don't have any proof that Jesus existed. So I'm not going to get into that today. Whole other study. We've talked about some of these things. Paul is basically saying, look, I've already explained to you how this works. How do we know that Paul believed in a resurrected Jesus? Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. You don't remember, context is really important here. Was Paul a Christian before all this? No. Paul was what? A Jew, he was a Pharisee, right? So he was a Jewish Pharisee. Didn't believe that there was a Messiah here yet because if the Messiah's here, he would have sat on David's throne. Paul was also a Roman, so he, might have, he, was, he was weird, but an intellectual. Okay, so what was Paul doing before he was saved? Killing Christians, hunting and killing Christians. He thought they were insane. So when we have an eyewitness testimony of the risen Christ come to us and write all of this stuff, which by the way, we have great documentation I know I've said this before, over 26,000 ancient codices, leading to the historical accuracy of the New Testament, some of which are as early as early second century. So right after the turn of the century from you know the 90s AD into the 100s. So early, early documents, multiple eyewitnesses, well over 300 documented eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And all these guys write it down because they were honest about it, they got hunted and killed. It's, that's not great news. That's pretty, pretty bad. That, but it helps us to understand that the text is very clear that these guys saw Christ and they were going to write about it and they were going to let us know what happened. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. So, an indicator here for those in Thessalonica, they're like, what happens to the dead? Jesus' words would have been, "Though you die, you live." So we know that people are going to die as believers, right? People die all the time. You're going to believe in Jesus. You might die before He comes back. You might be here when He comes back. I think that would be pretty cool. I don't know. I don't know what we're, we know what that's going to look like, but I think it's going to be scary. Even if you are a believer, you might be joyful and scary at the same time. But people have died, and people are going to die. And what happens in the meantime? Where do we go when we die? We have two good pieces of evidence that let us know that we go back to be with the Father. I'll share two verses with you. I actually read something even more contrary to what we were bringing you like this morning, early when I was doing my reading, and I was like, man, stop doing that. I've got this worked out. But It's, it's interesting uh, how many views there are on this, but I believe that these two verses help support, we know where we're gonna go. If you were to die tomorrow, we know this. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus says this. Jesus is on the cross. Who else is with him? Does anybody know off the top of their head? Who's with Jesus? It is the, uh, the two criminals. Two criminals. So they are also being what? Crucified. So they're all being crucified. Three, three guys are being crucified together as criminals of the state. So Jesus is there. Now, one of them completely rebukes Jesus. The other rebukes Jesus at first, but then obviously asks for some sort of forgiveness. And we have record of this. And then Jesus uh, says to him, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. And he's gonna see, he said he's going to see him that day, which is pretty interesting. I'm going to see you today in paradise. So that means Jesus is going to die that day. And where does Jesus go? Paradise, which also, side note, Jesus does not go to hell on that day. He goes into the ground. That's a whole other can of worms I won't open. Jesus goes to be in paradise. Now, here's an interesting thing about the word Paradise. That word paradise is actually paradisos. And does anybody know what that word translates as? Garden. Anybody just get it? Anybody get it? Mm -hmm. What did you just think about? Garden of Eden. Eden. Isn't that cool? So he says, I'm going to be with you in the garden today. That's what he said to him. So that's pretty cool. Here's another verse. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when we are away from our body, we are present with the Lord. We're present with the Lord. So we know that when you die, your spirit goes to be with the father. Paul says that Jesus will bring those who have fallen asleep with him. That's as we move on in this study where Paul is going to bring those who have fallen asleep with him. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting here, we were studying and I said, I'm going to say something to you and I want you to remember it because in a couple of weeks, we're going to go over this. I told you to take a mental note of 1 Thessalonians 3.12. 1 Thessalonians 3.12. It says there that the Lord will establish our hearts as blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with the saints. So he's going to establish us He's going to establish us as blameless and holy when he comes with the saints. So Jesus is coming and the saints, what are saints? What are those? Do you remember? What are saints? They are holy. So they are glorified people. They are coming with him from heaven. Listen to this. In Jude 14, 15, it gives a reference to this ancient book of Enoch. Anybody ever heard of that before, the book of Enoch? It's like an ancient book, and it's actually referenced in the New Testament. We have what we think is a copy of it, but it's not canon because there's probably a lot of mistakes in it, rewritings or whatever. But nonetheless, scholars use it because there's some references in it that can be useful. Anyway, it says this in Jude, referencing Enoch, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things and ungodly sinners have spoken against them so he is saying the saints are going to come with him so we've learned that we're hearing this now when Jesus comes back the believers are coming with him so who are those believers those are people who have died and are now present with the Father. Because if you're not with your body, you're present with the Father. When you die today, Jesus is going to see you in paradise. That's what we're hearing here, right? So let's go to verse 15. It gives us some order to how these events are going to happen. So let's, let's work this out. So verse 15 says this. For this we to declare to you by a word from the Lord... That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right, so here's the order of things. In the order of the second coming of Jesus, the believers who are alive will not be resurrected until those who are asleep are resurrected. Anybody getting a picture of this yet? It's going to get scary. Because those who are asleep are going to get resurrected. But Jesus comes with those who are asleep. So what gets resurrected? Anybody? The dead, the bodies are going to come up, right? So remember, this idea, we'll talk about this at some other time, Or glorified bodies. Whether you've been cremated or buried or you've rotted down to nothing, you're going to get a glorified body. So they're going to come up out of the ground. This is going to be pretty scary. Now, some people believe in a secret rapture. We'll get into that later. Pretty hard for there to be a secret rapture. There's a bunch of dead people floating up out of the grave. So that's a whole other thing. We're going to move on to verse 16. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven... With a cry of command. I don't know what he's saying, but he's like, I'm coming. With the voice of an archangel. So something that you cannot, it's different from everything else, and you can't ignore it. And with the sound of a trumpet of God. Why the sound of a trumpet? Anybody know? What would happen in Roman society? You've seen this in movies. You've seen it on TV. What happens when the king comes out? Trumpets blow, right? Guys, got a big, long brass trumpet sticking way out there. And like, here comes the king. That's what's happening. So the whole world can hear it. We know that God is coming. Jesus Christ is coming himself, right? Um, so the trumpet is playing and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so we just learned that the dead in Christ will come with him. We're being told that the dead in Christ will rise. This is what's called the resurrection of the dead. So those who have died in Christ exist with him in eternity, and they also come in, the bodies are resurrected, just as Christ's body was resurrected. So I know some people would be like, you really believe that? Like, doesn't that sound insane? That really there's going to be dead things coming up out of the ground, like dead people? We believe that Christ resurrected himself. Anybody ever see a body that's been dead for three days? It's not really in the shape you think it should be to be resurrected. It doesn't take long for things to start going bad. Uh, irreversibly bad. Actually, minutes, really. You think about it? You know, some science. Like, it doesn't take very long for a body to get to the point where things are getting poor quickly. Three days, things are looking pretty bad. But Christ's resurrected body was no longer in the tomb. We, we look at this. We've, we've done the Easter study before. And Christ is walking around healthy in a glorified body with his people. Christ was resurrected and so shall we be. 1 Corinthians 15 13 says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So think about this. He's really saying, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe the, the dead will be resurrected. You believe Christ was resurrected? I'll tell you this you have to believe the dead will get resurrected. That's a pretty difficult one to understand. But if you look at the story of Christ when he was crucified, do you remember what happened after uh, the veil was torn in the Holy of Holies? Does anybody remember that story? It's not very often covered in studies because it's weird. Dead people were coming up out of the graves and walking around the city. Dead people. Multiple eyewitnesses written by eyewitnesses. Dead people were walking. That's crazy. So there was some sort of resurrection of the dead then as well. Whatever that looked like. Right? So Christ set the example. He didn't cease to exist when his body was killed but he did become physically alive again, and so shall we be. All right, so the Thessalonians must have had questions about this, as we talked about before. That's why Paul's answering it. Thessalonians ask a question, and he's, uh, he's answering it. So he's answering the question for them, do not mourn, don't worry about them. God's got this, he's got a plan. I'm gonna give you a snapshot of what that looks like. This is what'll happen. Those who believe in Jesus are with the Father. They will return with Jesus when he returns, There'll be a physical resurrection. That's it. So let's talk just for a minute about the voices and the trumpets. And is there other, other evidence of this in the Bible? Now we're getting into true eschatology. You're going to hear a voice from heaven. You're going to hear trumpets. Jesus is going to come back. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Bear with me. I'm going to read it. It's going to give you a glimpse of what end times looks like. Behold, I tell you with a mystery. We shall not all sleep. So not everybody will get to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So at the last trumpet that is blown, everything changes, Christ has come back. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So glorification. Glorification, God is going to fix you forever. There's no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And this vessel that you've got that has bad knees and a bad back and has cried a lot of tears and has given birth to babies and has been in car accidents or broken bones, fixed, done. Um, Will it bear the scars of life? I don't know, Christ's did, Remember the story of Thomas? Thomas is like, do you, I don't believe in you, prove it to me. And he's like, all right, let me prove it to you. I'll show you. But somehow in the same sense, glorified, right? Fixed. Um, I don't know. I, there's some theories about whether or not having, bearing those scars will help us to understand the glory that Christ brings to us. How amazing it is. Revelation 11:15? says this. When the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Revelation shows this picture of a trumpet blowing and an angel shouting, Christ is coming. It's his kingdom now. It's no longer yours. Right? So just a couple of things that are important to get out of the way before we get into all the conversational stuff and controversial stuff about the second coming of Christ, right? Really weird topic. Like we usually like to talk about things like hope and joy and love. Paul says, I don't want you to be dumb about this, so we'll go over it. And we're gonna set a lot of it aside because like I said, there are more important things to go over, I think. So we're gonna learn what Paul says, Christ is coming back and how that works. And we're gonna move on to other things, not for a good reason, right? So a couple of controversial things. First, in our next study, we're gonna talk about the rapture. Okay, I know a lot of you have heard that word rapture before. And it is contentious in churches. Even people that love each other, it's very contentious. we're going to talk about it. Or what is the gathering up of believers who are alive. Um, And what we have learned today is that it's not a secret. There is no secret rapture. It's not a thing. Paul is clear. There will be some very distinct signs about what's going to happen. There will be a cry of command, a voice of an archangel, and a trumpet. And we can rightly assume from this there will be plenty of reasons to know what's happening Christ is coming back. Second, believers who are alive will see the dead rise from the graves. Another clear piece of evidence, Christ is here. And lastly, there are a lot of conflicting pieces of information about the rapture and there are a number of views on whether or not this will be an event that takes place before the second coming. Some people believe that the rapture will happen and we'll go back to heaven and then Christ will come back with us to judge the earth. That's one view. So, if, the second, um, it, if it is the second coming, then this will happen at a certain point on an eschatological timeline that will, I'll give you my view on this when we get there next week, but there are kind of a ton of views on that, right? Um, and that word, it's just a big word that theologians really debate over whether it's happening here. And I'm, I'm gonna give you a snapshot real quick. So here's what it looks like. There are some people who believe in what's called a tribulation period a seven-year period that'll happen where everything's awful on the planet. And they also believe it's broken up into two, three-year periods. There are some people that believe this taking up of believers happens before the tribulation. There are some that believe it happens in the middle of the tribulation. And there are some that believe it happens at the end of the tribulation. And they all believe this happens before what is called the millennial period, which is talked about a thousand years in uh, Revelation uh, 22, I believe. So they believe in this series of events. And then there are those that believe the tribulation period does not happen. That is attached to a Daniel prophecy in Daniel 9 that is a removal of a seven year period off from a 490 year period that if you look at Daniel may just belong to Israel, not to us. And there are those that, and so the millennial period is broken down into this. people who are pre-millennial believe the millennial period is yet to come. There are people who believe we are post-millennial or the millennial period already happened. And then there are those who believe in the amillennial point of view, which technically the word would mean no millennial because ah in front of it, but it really doesn't mean that. It really just means that the word millennium when it's used doesn't mean a literal thousand years. They believe what John was being revealed from God in Revelation was when he said, millennial period was, a lengthy period of time. It's kind of like, I don't know, have you ever driven, a, who's driven a big, you've driven in Boston before? It's like if you ever drive across Boston, you could sit in the car and be like, this is gonna take me a thousand years. In Boston, it might actually take you a thousand years, but you see what I'm saying? So it's one of these kind of isms, man, it's gonna be a thousand years before that happens. So we don't know, but I'll tell you my views. In the next study, we're gonna look at these views. I'll tell you where I stand on it, but I just want to say this to get it out of the way. There's no secret rapture. Movies like the Left Behind series, anybody ever seen those? Like the Left Behind series, seriously popular? Very, very bad, totally unbiblical. This idea that just poof, all these Christians are gone and then the world, and then there's people here who are kind of like, oh man, but I believe in God. What, what, What happened? No, not gonna happen. We've got it all laid out in the book. So why that was written like that by a guy who's supposedly a believer, I, I have no idea. Um, these extreme focused views on eschatology, and I listen to them. I'm a sucker for listening to like, guys who've got extreme views on the end times and like sitting in, at my desk and like, ripping through the Bible and books and trying to help, I don't know. But they can lead to a lot of problems in the church, right? People stand on hills and they proclaim that they've figured out the math and that they know when Christ is coming back and they've got it figured out. I mean, look, uh, who was that guy Jones had all the people drink all the Kool-Aid a bunch of like 300 and something people. Jim Jones. Jim Jones, Jim Jones had all those people kill themselves. Uh, you got, um, and I know a lot of people love speaking highly of the guy from, that started Calvary Chapel. A movie's coming out about him uh, this upcoming summer. Um, but uh, in 1981, he had everybody sitting in Calvary Chapel, Costa, Rica, Costa Mesa because the rapture was gonna happen on New Year's Eve and all those people sat in his church. It didn't happen. It just didn't happen. So I, I think it's really bad. Theology is really bad for the health of the church to tell people, I know when he's coming back. Look, we need to focus on... Look, if your church hasn't, has had divorces in it, you are focusing on the wrong thing. You need to focus on fixing people's marriages. You know what I mean? Like there are problems in the church we need to be fixing, not focusing on stuff that we can't 100% figure out. So focus on what's important, right? Anyway, I just, I want you to understand, keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus is clear in Matthew 24, 36, that even Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. Who knows? Does anybody know who knows when the end is? Only God. Only the father, right? Of the God, of the triune God, only the father knows. Why is it like that? I don't know. How can it be a triune God who's all-knowing and it's only the... F- I don't know. But that's His plan and I will believe it, right? God is great at OPSEC, God is great at OPSEC right? And, I, and He doesn't mess it up. Jesus doesn't want us to mourn those who have died. That's the main thing here. Those of us who have friends who have passed or family that's passed can be assured that if they're in Christ and they died, they go to be with Him. And not only are they with Him, but they're also going to come back. So imagine this, one of your family members who's died, they're coming back with Christ to get you. That's pretty cool. This idea like, I'm going back in. Talk about a cool mission, I'm going back in. We're going, Jesus is like, let's go, mount up, we're rolling. You know, check your comms, get everything ready to go. Because not only are they coming in to get people, they're coming in to judge. It's going to be pretty interesting. Anyway. This message was never delivered by Paul to instigate an end-time debate. And I think that's kind of one of the points of this. We're not supposed to sit and debate end-time stuff. That's not why he's giving it to them. He's he's bringing it to bring hope. Um, This was a message of hope. It's a reminder of his great power, one, to resurrect himself. And it's a firm message that he has the power to raise the dead. The question is not where you stand on your eschatology. We'll, we'll talk about it. I'm sure people will talk about it. We'll talk about it for weeks. Where do you stand? Where do you stand on this? But what about this verse? But what about this book? What about this period? Said so we can talk about that. That's great. I love talking about it too. But that's not the point. If you believe he's going to return, that's the important thing. Is he coming back for you? That's the important thing. That's where our hope lies and that we know that he's coming back for us, that he's coming back to rescue us from this. And if you don't believe that today, all the other lessons we've been talking about, don't matter. You have to know he's coming back for you. You have to know he's coming to rescue us from this. You have to know that your wife and your kids, men, are safe in him and that you are preparing the way because it's up to you to prepare her to be spotless and holy. It's up to you to lift them up. So we must know that every bit of our striving here as a body, that our loving one another in the church, abounding in brotherly and sisterly love, all of that, all of our obedience to God, all of our pious acts, the things we do that are good, all of our prayers, and not only all of those good things, but all of our guilt, all of our shame, and all of our suffering, all of your success that you've ever had, all of the happiness you've ever experienced, they're all temporary. Every single bit of it is temporary. They're all temporary parts of the plan that God has for you. People like to say this, God's got a plan for your life. And yeah, God's got a plan for you. Man, and it's not to make e nine, and it's not to make Colonel, and it's not to win the lottery. You know, it's not to have a big bank account. You know, God's got a plan for your life. Stop. God's got a plan to raise you from the dead. You think being a millionaire is cool? Anybody here raise your hand if you know somebody who brought themselves back from the dead? Lots of people get rich. Lots of people figure out how to do life without God. Nobody's figured out how to bring themselves back from the dead yet. Nobody else has figured out how to live in eternity and holiness with the Father. God does have a plan for you. He's coming to take you home. He's coming to take you home to glory. He's coming to take you home to be with Him. He's coming to take you home to perfection. He's coming to take you home to be present with Him. You know, there's this, uh, this idea, I think, when we think about you know, the big holidays where what happens on holidays and people hear this regularly, I'm going home. I'm going home for the holidays. We're going to celebrate, so we're all going home. There's a big meal, there's a feast, and people love each other and pray for one another. There's this, this idea that God has built in us that going home is somehow the place that you're supposed to be. Somehow, I know it's not that way for everybody, but just in concept as humans, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? that when it's time to celebrate, we go home. That's what Paul's telling us. There's an invitation here. Not only are you gonna go home, he's not just sending you something in the mail to say RSVP, he's like, I'm coming to get you and I'm gonna bring you home because I love you. And that's what we're gonna focus on. So get ready for two weeks, read ahead. It's gonna be a good study next week. But this week and next week, let's focus on this. Your hope and your joy is in this. Abound in love. Pray for one another because God is coming to bring you home. Father God, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for this amazing group of people who together in your name. We're thankful for this study that you can help us get a glimpse of what it looks like that you are going to come return us to the Father. I'm so thankful for all these people and the way that people have loved each other, and the way that people have served one another and taken care of one another, I am so thankful for all these beautiful children that are gathering around us and beautiful children that are to come. And we're just hopeful, Lord, that as a family, we are able to pour into all of these kids and give them a great and safe environment to be in, that they will all be raised in you, Lord, that not only we have this hope, that we will pass that hope onto them, that life isn't just about living, that life isn't about carpe diem, that life is actually about knowing that you are coming back to get us and to rescue us from this place. Father, we're thankful for that and we ask that you help us to give that to them. For all the people we lifted up today, Lord, we just ask that you would continue to bless their lives and help them to see you in everything. I ask that you send us out this week to be a light to our community that people might see your hope in us. And we ask for all of our blessings, the precious and holy name of our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.